Thanks for joining us at Colts to Consciousness. This storytelling podcast is meant to be for entertainment purposes only and does not substitute for any medical advice. We may discuss triggering topics and we ask that you make your personal mental health a priority. Lastly, the opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the host. Three of my siblings got married at the same time on the same day. Uh, they chose to continue Warren Jeff's faith. I've had to mourn them as though you would mourn a death and say goodbye. My sister was placed into hiding, disappeared, and I remember writing her letters and just dropping them in the mailbox without uh, an address, kind of like children do with Santa Claus, you know? <laughs> and I never thought I would see her again. But Hey, my name is Shalise Ansola, and this is Cults to Consciousness, where we discuss leaving high-demand religions or organizations and finding healing and independence through awareness and true individual sovereignty. If you're only listening and you want to see our faces, go to my YouTube channel at Cults to Consciousness, where you can like, subscribe, join in on the conversation. Uh, it helps boost the algorithm so more people can see the videos. And I just really appreciate the support. So today's guest, you have seen her once. We knew it was going to be a two-parter because it is such a dense story. Welcome back to the show, Jude Bateman. Thank you. Will she give up her eternal salvation and live in the eternal damnation of hell or? <laughs> exactly. So for those of you who are like, what is she talking about on our previous episode? If you haven't watched it, uh, you can go back and watch it or you can just watch this one first. The order doesn't really matter, but you will get more context into her life previously um, to make this one make a little bit more sense. So in the previous episode, we talked about Jude's life growing up in the fundamentalist uh, Latter-day Saint church, which is known as the FLDS. And the one that she grew up in was actually run by Warren Jeffs, who is now in prison for all the shenanigans that he was up to while being the leader of the church of the FLDS in Colorado City. City. Right? <laughs> I said springs yeah. last time. <laughs> so we detailed her life, what it was like growing up, and it was a lot. I cannot imagine all the things that she had to go through. And I knew that this would be a two-parter because in this episode, we're going to be discussing how she escaped and how she acclimated into day-to-day -day life, regular life. And just to give a few examples of why that would be so difficult, they didn't have TV. They weren't allowed to read certain books. Actually, most of the books, she said, had to be burned. Um, they were forced to be in this, the confines of this community, had to get permission to leave. It was really, really intense and forced arranged marriages from a very young age. So where we left off from the previous episode is Jude was about to tell us if she decided or if she had to go through with being married, being forced to be married to someone she had no idea who they were. You were in the office with a leader. He is telling you, you have been chosen to be assigned and married and you are just begging and pleading and thinking of all the things that you can say to not let this happen. So drop us back into what that was like. Here I am in this moment where, as you said, I'm I'm pleading and like grasping any sort of explanation that's going to release me from what's about to happen. And it was very much like a brace for impact moment. I've committed to not following through. And then I'm faced with this, oh my gosh, like, am I, 
am I going to get out of this situation and be forced into this marriage and then have to find a way out after? Like, what am I going to do? And Yuri was like throwing out all of these excuses, just sort of like hoping that he would grab onto one of them and say and agree with me. Like, yeah, you know what? You're right. Let's go ahead and give you more time. Let's um, let's have you do some whatever it was like you need to read scripture more you need to practice or spend time with with the uh church leaders whatever it was and and there wasn't anything everything was met with um no this is absolutely the answer the only answer for any of your issues at this moment are going to be through your husband and you're going to start your new life and I had, now mind you, I had no idea who this person was. No idea. But I didn't even care. I was just panicking. Like, I had no idea who it was. It could have been somebody that I was attracted to. Maybe it was somebody that I had had a little crush on in church. I don't know. But at that point, I was just trying to survive. I had a plan. I was going to leave. I had all of these uh, things that I wanted to do. I wanted to go to school. I wanted to go through the experience of life outside of the community, all of, all of these things in my mind. And all of that was just about to crumble every fantasy that I'd had for the last couple of years since I turned myself in. Yeah. As you can imagine, my heart is racing. My mouth is dry. I'm alone. Nobody's there to protect or defend me. I am I'm alone. I'm shaking. And, but I am hell bent on following through. I was, I was like in this vehicle of teenage angst and it was going somewhere in a different direction. (laughs) So there was this pause for a moment where we were just sort of locked eye to eye contact. And it's kind of like running up to a beast in the wild and you're like, all right, how am I going to get out of this? And I just remember this moment of just like silence that I'm looking at him like, do I run? Is that door locked? (laughs) And I said, no. I used the powerful, powerful words of no. Like, I don't think that I had ever actually embraced that free will and right to use the words no. And I had said it. I was, no, I have a different path. I have a different choice for myself. And at that moment, it invoked some sort of anger in him. And this is a a leader that was, by most people and most followers, was rather gentle um, he certainly wasn't someone who expressed any type of anger or anything like that. Um, certainly don't, in this day, like reflecting back, don't have any specific ill will. But in that moment, it certainly enticed some frustration, for sure. And I imagine that he's looked upon, too, to fulfill this obligation to get this rebellious woman in the arms and throes of, of another man to save her, to save her eternity. Um, her eternal salvation. So he'd stood up and he'd like in this demonstration of, of aggression, just sort of slammed his hands on the, the desk and repeated some, I don't recall what it was, but some scripture 
And although I felt this overwhelming feeling of, like I just wanted to throw up because now I met with this guilt and the shame yeah. of potentially throwing away my whole life, everything that I'd ever known. And now, and there's also this, this idea that I was still clinging to the beliefs that I'd grown up with, that this is the only way to heaven was to live through this life. So here I am with these competing, these conflicting thoughts and I just, oh, she's like overwhelmed with this almost like wanting to just vomit like it was just so much. But I was still committed to leaving. And I just stuck to it. Like after he had um, expressed that demonstration and was was telling me where I was, what my um, destiny was basically at that point. And I was I was stuck to it. I was like, no, it's, it's not for me. Wow. And he gently sat down and just stared in like absolute confusion. I don't think that he'd ever had someone say, no, this was such an honor to be placed in this position. We were taught our whole lives that this was a blessing and this was an honor. And especially in this specific event where there was this annual wedding festivities and it was supposed to be very romanticized. Um, and it was like this sensational romantic idea. And although some of that was enticing, I just didn't want to be part of that story. And my story was different. And I wanted to be the author of, of my story and exercise that free will. And I remember walking out of the door and just kind of like this flux of Wow, my whole life just barely changed. And now, here comes the next intense part. Now I have to face my father. Yeah. I just denied a marriage. <sighs> I want to clarify some of the details for people who may be just tuning in to this video first. So you are in, you're not in your hometown. You're not near your parents physically. You're actually in Canada. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's that separation. She literally is alone. And the other thing is in the fundamentalist group, the fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, it is commanded to practice polygamy. That's just like the whole thing. So I guess we, we kind of forgot to say not only is it arranged marriage, but she will probably eventually become a plural wife. And so and also you are commanded to have as many children as possible, multiply and replenish the earth. So this is yes. not just one thing. This is going to lead to multiple other things in her life that she does not want. And these women, when she said turn herself in, she meant you you go before the leaders when you feel you are ready and say, OK, I'm ready to be married and then at any given point they can just come to your door and say okay you're getting married i don't know tomorrow or whenever they decide and tell everyone i thought it was really interesting off camera you mentioned about your wedding dress i think that would be an interesting detail for people to know yes from a very young age we know that our wedding day could come at any time and you must be prepared so there's there's a couple of things that our mothers assist us in preparing. And one is our wedding dress. 
Um, and there are some women, I'm sure, that don't make their wedding dress until the day of. But most of the time we have a wedding dress that sits in our closet. It might be passed down. It might be one that's waiting. And that's a reminder uh, to, to remain steadfast to our principles and to prepare for marriage and for children. And so we have our wedding dress ready. And I remember having mine um, sitting in the closet for years, sort of collecting dust and waiting for that, that special day. And the other thing is we have um, what's similar to, I had, well, we called it a hope chest. I'm sure a lot of people. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Had we had that too. <laughs> where we kept like baby clothes yeah. for when we have our children. We kept things for our kitchen, things to prepare for our home. To me, a lot of those reminders with the hope chest was the fact that we probably wouldn't be a first wife and wouldn't need most of that. I'd had those things ready. Uh, for this day. And I didn't have, of course, I didn't bring my wedding dress with me. I didn't think that I would be in that situation. Now came the time for me to tell my father that I denied this arrangement. And not only did you deny the arrangement, but the reason you were in Canada in the first place is because you were seen as rebellious and this was like a way to get you back on track. So it's kind of like a double negative on Correct. your part, yeah. I mean, according to their rules, but not really. And now you have to go back and be like, yeah, so the camp didn't work <laughs> because <laughs> I didn't right. do what I was supposed to do. Sorry, I don't know what to tell you. And a few other details I want to mention because they're all flooding to me now. And I, I'm i sure everyone's like, just get to the part with the dad. But I have to, I have to add these in here, too. So... <laughs> When you are assigned to be married to someone, like you were saying, you might be a plural wife. I want to give the full scope of what this could mean. So after watching some documentaries, I know that there may be incredible age gaps. So what are some of the biggest age gaps that you personally saw when you were there uh, in the Warren Jeffs community? Ooh, I've seen age gaps as far as... 50-year difference. Oh, my god! That's unusual. But in terms of the, the largest gap, you might have someone who's 18, 19, 20 with someone who's 70. Wow. Um, generally speaking, you would I'd say the average is 20, 30, 20, 30 years, which there's, there's a lot of age gap relationships anywhere. But the difference, and this is what I cited previously in the first episode, is choice and free will. If, if individuals are both or two, two individuals that are agreeing to come into this, this partnership, by all means, you know, continue. Yeah. Uh, but in these situations, they're not. This is a very difficult process. Obviously, this is much more beneficial for the man than it is yeah. for, the, for the, for the females in this, this type of arrangement in this situation. Yeah. And you, you had also mentioned that sometimes they're under 18. Yeah. Um, and there is a lot of argument that occurs in the community on other platforms where people from the communities talk about this. And any of the, the members that deny this, I, I beg to differ because not only have I witnessed this myself, but we all know that these types of um, arrangements occur behind the scenes. 
And it may not be known for some time, but it's not unusual to have these setups prior to being of age. Right. And when you say that, we're talking like 14-year-olds, right? Yeah. Um, the, the youngest that I've known of, of course, I didn't witness any type of ceremony, but the youngest that I've known of is 12 years old. Mm. The one I'm thinking of specifically is very well known in the court case that ultimately brought um, Warren Jeff's demise, which is his um, his young wife that, you know, even if you Google it, that's one of the first images that come up is his 12-year-old wife. So, um, and that wasn't unusual for him to take on brides that were of that age. Right. Prepubescent. Oh, that I just, mm, mm -mm. I don't even have words. Just no. No is the word that is coming to mind. It's just no. And (laughs) the reason I wanted to express these details is because I want people to understand why it was such a big deal for you to say no and why you were so against it because it's not just, oh, you're 17 and it's arranged marriage, like just deal with it. There's so many more factors that go into this and that would eventually shape your life. So I just wanted to hang that in the balance of everyone's brain so that you can understand the severity of where this probably would have ended up if she would have agreed against her will. Exactly. Can you agree against your will? Agree against what you wanted. (laughs) All right, you get home Let's go to your conversation with dad. At this moment, I thought that I was going to be calling my father to what would appear very much like a confessional. Unbeknownst to me, what was really occurring in the background. But I thought that I was going to call my father and say, I denied it. um, Knowing that he knew full well what was occurring. But I called him so many times and I couldn't quite (laughs) let the call go through. I was like running a script through my mind and like thinking of all the ways I could defend myself. (laughs) And so finally, I was like, okay, here's another brace for impact moment. I got to get this over with. So he answers the phone and I said to him, I couldn't go through with it. (laughs) And he goes, "Uh, go through with what? And I said, I, I said no to the marriage. He had no idea. Mm. He had no idea that my marriage was arranged and that I was going to be um, given to someone else. And that was very, very upsetting and very angry that no one had called to ask for his blessing first, because that is the standard tradition The father is generally the individual that relays the message and delivers his daughter to the church, um, to the event. And he didn't know. So long story short, come to find out that my brothers had arranged it and were in close communication with the church because they didn't feel that I was going to commit to remaining in the community and commit to the to the church so and they knew that my father was not in agreement with having his daughters marry prior to 18 Mm. he didn't want the legal liability of it yeah and my dad had somewhat of a reputation like he was his name was not on the list of hierarchy because 
he was not a very, very traditional um, type of FLDS man. He still went to the priests and meetings. He would still participate in the activities. But there was a lot of, of things that he did that obviously were shown as, as non-committal, fully committed. And one of those is that he wouldn't grovel and repent before Warren, and he would not give his true testament that Warren was the ultimate leader and the ultimate, for lack of a better term, God mm. in our community. And so even though he wasn't banished, because most men would just be banished, they would their families would be extracted and removed, they would be ostracized, and they would no longer have any rights to their family. And that happened later on. And I'm sure that Warren would have eventually brought that to my father if he had not um, made a decision that he made later on. That gives some context as to why he was not engaged in this decision. It was my brothers going behind his back and they were going to force me into this marriage to save me, save my salvation. And so in that moment, um, I imagine that my father also adopted some of this angst as well. And at that moment, he made a decision to come to my aid. So he said to me, I've always known this life was not for you. I've always known that this day would come and you're not going to go through with it. And um, he'd given some examples of my being rather mouthy and disobedient. (laughs) (laughs) And then... He'd also said that I had given the family a fair amount of, of shame and embarrassment, which I have. I had at that point. <laughs> and that it was time. And I said, well, Dad, I one of the reasons that I made this choice was because I would like to go to college and I have other plans. I'd like to travel and I would like, you know, I give him a list of these things. And unexpectedly, he expressed a lot of pride for my decision. And for the first time in my life, he was able to express some some semblance of love, which was always resisted, at least in the first ward where I'm from. There was a tremendous amount of restriction, resistance to demonstrations of love. No hugging, no saying, I love you. You don't do those types of things. Anything that showed that vulnerability and weakness, you would have to express that with loved ones behind closed doors. It was not accepted to have that type of of demonstration of love. I remember the first time I ever even hugged my father was the moment that that he had dropped me off to where I was going to live after I'd left. Wow. Yeah, there was always this very um, contained kind of um, idea that you had to contain your emotions no matter what. You had to demonstrate that you had this great amount of strength and, and you couldn't um, show any type of passivity. He said, okay, I am going to, your mother and I are going to get in the van right now. We're going to drive all the way from, this is Colorado city, Arizona, all the way to Canada. And that's what he did in that very moment. And he drove all the way there nonstop and picked my sorry butt up, (laughs) (laughs) drove us all the way back to Arizona that same day. When we drove back, he said, okay, go get your stuff and uh, I'm going to take you to your your aunt's house. And this is my aunt who, who had left years and years prior. She lived in Salt Lake and she was going to assist me in kind of acclimating to the new world, which I owe so 
I owe so, 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 so much to her and her husband for assisting me in that part of my journey and, and really paving, paving a, a runway for my success. All I had was one box from the warehouse store. It was just this, this um, fruit box. And I had everything I ever had because I had left my hope chest. I'd left my wedding dress. I'd left all that behind, whatever I could fit in this box. And um, said goodbye to my siblings that I had helped raise and, and uh, took off. It was my mother and my father and, and me. For people who aren't familiar, what does this mean? So you leave and is this a, like a strong goodbye for your family? Are you able to ever see them again? What happens once you have declared yourself no longer a part of the FLDS? I absolutely love that you brought that up because that's such a poignant moment for anyone who makes that choice to leave. And it's the reason that 90% of individuals that want to leave don't. And they end up just living the day-to-day in the community, even though they don't truly believe it in their hearts, is because you give up the sense of belonging. You could potentially never see your family again, your siblings. Everything that you ever knew, every memory, you have to potentially leave it behind. You And I didn't know. I didn't know if... I was ever going to be accepted back. I didn't have that conversation with my parents. I knew quite certainly that I would lose all of my friends, all of my acquaintances, my siblings who had already married into the community. I would lose them. But as far as my siblings that were still young, that were still in the family, I didn't know. I could potentially have said goodbye to them for the very last time. So it's a it's a big moment for most people and, and also another reason why they return after they leave the community. Not only is it they don't have the tools and resources necessary to acclimate into the real world, which is intentional by the leadership, but um, that sense of belonging, you don't have any of that. You yeah. lose everything. You've mentioned before that you felt really lucky to have had parents who assisted you out of the community where oh, some yeah. women have to literally go in the middle of the night and escape. In the night. So what was it like when you got to your aunt's house? Like, paint us a picture of what's going on. How did she accept you? <laughs> was she just like, all right, I'm going to show you the world. <laughs> How did this go down? <laughs> yeah. Her and the entire family that I had lived with, they were very very happy to embrace me and very committed to my choice for education. Within a week, they had assisted me in enrolling in courses at Salt Lake Community College to get started. Um, I was obviously a little behind in education and, and they had helped me uh, get that all the course um, courses and plans set up with, with school and um, they had, I had a job within a week that they had set me up with. So my situation was a little easier than most that once again, those that are escaping in the night are relying on, on state resources and, and just sort of day by day, just trying to survive. Um, I didn't experience that part until about a year, maybe two years after when I decided to challenge myself and, 
I wanted to venture out on my own and felt that I shouldn't lean and and uh, rely on the resources of others, um, not knowing that it that I would have to experience that all at a much older age than I feel most people do. So that experience for me didn't come until I was like 19 or 20. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, wow. Yeah. So this is what it's like to figure everything out on your own. Yeah. And I'm sure it's a classic case of you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. So what were the things you didn't know that you didn't know until you experienced them? <laughs> right. It's the silliest things, like, for example, understanding how to set up a bank account and knowing how to operate um, those general finances. Like, I didn't know what a checkbook Uh was or, like, like, how to open an account. And there were so many times I would go to do something on my own for the very first time, and I would have to kind of lean in embarrassingly and just be like, I've never done this before. Oh, and have someone kind of like, what? Like in such such confusion, like trying to explain to me uh, how how things work and just like going on a date for the first time, like a real traditional date was a little awkward to kind of navigate and just learning all the rules of courtship in the outside world. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like in reflection, it's rather comical. It really is. Oh my gosh. Please tell us about your first date. <laughs> oh, <laughs> wow. Um, blast from the past. Okay. There was this gentleman that had, was one of our uh, customers at this place that I had worked and he had let someone know that he was interested. And so they had, they were obliged to to set us up and, and on a date, and I remember telling her I was like, "Okay, all right, well, uh, what do I do?" <laughs> and she was kind of laughing. She's like, "Well, you show up for one, and then it just yeah. sort of just you know <laughs> unfolds, progresses." And I was yeah. like, "All right, great, <laughs> it progresses on its own." <laughs> so I had gone to this date, and I remember um, just being unbelievably nervous and he was kind of laughing at my my behavior in a sentimental way and I was I remember treating it very much like it was an interview like it was a professional yeah (laughs) which in some ways that's kind of like how first dates are right we're vetting each other yeah I did have to tell him that this was my first date and I'd never gone out with anybody before and lucky for me they it was with someone that could have taken advantage of this opportunity, but right. instead found it to be rather, rather comical himself. And <laughs> he sort of just was, was sort of guiding me. He's like, well, this is where you, you know, you can ask me questions. <laughs> so it was kind of sweet. And I remember we were at a really nice restaurant where there were, there was far too much cutlery on the table. <laughs> so I was kind of watching him and watching other people and trying to figure out like, I was like, can't we just use a fork for everything? Like, <laughs> it was a sweet moment, and I would realized then that this was actually rather fun. I get to have all these adventures and this excitement. So um, my experience happened to be quite delightful. So it, it was fun, and even though I had felt like I was years behind yeah. um, in adjusting to this type of, of life. But, yeah, it was fun. If this is too personal, you don't have to answer. I'm just wondering, coming from a family in a community that doesn't express any sort of affection and kind of throws you into marriage, like, 
unaware of what you're supposed to be doing. Were you excited to be able to be affectionate with somebody? Was that something that took a long time to develop? Because I'm sure even the nuance of like, do you kiss on the first date? Probably probably didn't know that that was a thing. Or like, how do I approach this? What was that like? Yeah, that's such an intriguing question. Because I know after speaking to so many other individuals that have a story similar to mine, it is a lifelong journey to redefine love and redefine affection and worthiness. There is so much of that that is an everyday redirection in our thoughts to remove that old programming and redevelop it. That is that is probably one of the most challenging pieces of acclimating that is lifelong, at least for me and for a lot of my siblings that I talk to and other friends and family members, is that old programming. We feel that or have felt that there's this idea that you have to be worthy in order to receive it. Mm. And I've had to challenge myself an awful lot with that, that you don't have to go through this entire feat of demonstration of obedience to receive love. And what is genuine love? And what does that look like? What's that? What is unconditional love? And do you have to do all of these things in order to accept it and receive it? So affection was, it was very, it took me a very long time to openly receive affection and to deliver it as well. It took me years well after my first relationship being married and having children to really, um, to be free in love yeah, and to release that fear, that fear of receiving love. Yeah. Which I, I also realized that that's a whole lot of people out there, regardless of their backgrounds. Yeah. But that there is something to be said about the ultimate confines and restrictions that you were raised in that, I mean, I, we know through brain studies and chemistry, uh, brain chemistry, that a child's brain is really just kind of programming itself from zero to seven. And that's the wiring that you end up with when you're an adult. And if you don't actively Mm -hmm. rewire, you're going to be going on these programs. So being in a high demand group, the mainstream Mormons, I still have stuff that I'm reprogramming because I was born and raised in it. and, And that's what my parents knew. And that's what they thought was best for me. So I don't blame them. But it is something that we have to redefine for ourselves actively. We can't just be like, well, I left and now I'm fine (laughs) because that's not how it works. (laughs) That's not how it works at all. Yeah. What was one of the major wake up calls for you? One of the things that maybe you didn't realize you would be faced with when you made the decision to leave the community that was, I don't know, maybe your biggest challenge after leaving? Yeah. One was relationships for sure. I understood later on after struggle after struggle that um, I had to relearn how to operate in a healthy way in a relationship. That was one of the most difficult things is to learn how to communicate my needs, learn to understand that I have a voice and that I have the right and ability to exercise that voice. But primarily it was probably relationships 
really understanding that I had just as much of a right to be there in a relationship as, as my partner. That was one of the most difficult. And the other was understanding day-to-day life and how to manage uh, finances. We didn't really have any exposure at all to how to cultivate a business or our finances. We had always had this reliance on the community for everything. Mm. There was one big warehouse where you received all of your items or you would have a, in many families, you'd have a caretaker that managed those finances for you. You brought a list that said, I need A, B, and C. And those items were either denied or or given to you based on whether or not they felt that you needed them or deserved them. There was, there wasn't any, any way to really learn um, either through third party or by witnessing it, really learn how to to manage um, your day-to-day life, how to live out in the real world, pay your rent, get your job, manage your your finances. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. I mean, that's hard for a regular person to learn <laughs> because <laughs> right. they don't really teach that in schools, but at least you have the modeling around you. Absolutely, if it's not yeah. a parent, it's a friend or someone who can help you through that. Wow. Was there anything anything specific that you really wanted to speak on as far as the acclimating process that we haven't covered already? Yeah, I would say returning to that idea of having a tribe, even though you were, you're learning all of the social rules and you're learning how to make friends outside of the community, some of that was still a bit of a challenge regardless of how friendly or engaging I was, there was still an unsureness of of how to really cultivate a new tribe. So I had struggled for years, and I know that a lot of individuals I speak to have this experience as well of this loneliness. It's almost like having a limb removed, and we have this phantom limb syndrome, but emotionally, where we have a loss of our tribe, and there's that white noise after all this chaos, you're coming from a family where there's always a baby crying and there's always children running around screaming and playing. And there's always commotion in the home because there's so many people. There's always, so you have your level of stimulation up here and now suddenly you're here. So a lot of times if we're not super hyper aware of our consciousness and our actions and behaviors, what do we want to do? We want to fill that cup back up with the noise of the stimulation. And generally individuals end up resulting or resorting to other things that are very, very unhealthy to bring that stimulation back up there to fill that that void. So it might be drugs or sex or any other type of addictions. Lucky for me, I had good people in my corner that turned me to education. So if I was curious about certain concepts, I could return to to finding some type of resource. And there were certainly a lot of battles that I had to overcome in in that discovery. But primarily, that's where people are, are turning to, to feel that. And there's just, there's so much angst in between here. The other thing too is, You brought up a really good point as well, where when you are between that zero to three age gap, there's so much imprinting that is required and necessary for our brains to be able to operate in a world in a a healthy way. 
So when we're not receiving that level of parenting and attachment, we get to reparent and we get to learn attachment later on in life. And it just becomes that much more difficult to unwire all of those bundled up Christmas lights and rewire them back together in that way. So I believe that most of us ended up with some type of attachment injury and we get to redefine, as I had said before, we define those definitions of love and acceptance and worthiness, which is a lifelong journey. I would love to know more about your journey with education. When you left the compound, did you have a high school diploma? Where did you end up going with your education? What route did you take? And I want to know where you are now. Yeah, awesome. In our community, although we went to a state-funded public school, it was filled with just individuals that were from our community. So everything was managed in a non-traditional way. And so I didn't necessarily receive a high school diploma that was registered. So when I went to the community college, they were like, well, we have absolutely no record of you. Yeah. (laughs) So I was like, great. Okay, we get to start from ground one. They had a, a community program where they were able to combine certain credits they had taken from the school and receive receive letters from the high school to combine that um, with this program to be able to sort of catch up, do like a fast track so that I could continue my generals at the community college and then later on go to a university. So I had started there and that's when I got to really understand that there was so much that was hidden from all of us, whether that was just certain ideals and concepts to who was um, who was current. I didn't even know who was in the White House at that point. Like we had no idea. A lot of historical references and just exposure to, to different truths and history and biology and, and all of those types of subjects. I had quickly um, completed my generals there. And then somewhere in that mix is when I really got to experience what it was like to be on my own because I had at that um, in the middle of that education, that two years education, I had left my aunt's house. I wanted to learn how to acclimate on my own. And that is where I sort of agreed to, to thrust myself into a whole new situation where I thought that I was ready. And I certainly was not. And um, had been faced with just this very, very naive, very innocent approach to life. And like with Anyone in that situation, you have the predators that come out of the darkness and and want to take advantage of that. So I had experienced one downfall after another and was just defeated over and over again simply because here I am navigating through life on my own and repeatedly opening up my toolbox without any tools in it Yeah, and figuring me out, trying to to navigate. Well, there was a specific incident that had occurred that completely changed my life, turned it inside out, upside down and backward. And once again, I um, contacted my parents and asked them to come to the rescue. And that is when I was, when my father removed me from where I was in Salt Lake City in 
to, he'd moved me to Cedar City, Utah. And at this point, I was, you know, I was very much an adult and I was in my 20s. So he had, <laughs> he'd helped me move and then was like, well, you're an adult. See you later. And, you know, didn't talk to him for years after, but. And that's when I had enrolled in at school at Southern Utah University in Cedar City and uh, just started all over again and pursued my degree in education and psychology. And that's where I graduated. It's sort of one of those things where I was like, I want to be everything, but I can't be. So I guess I'll just choose education (laughs) (laughs) and followed it in my father's footsteps. I was a a school teacher for a couple of years and ended up taking quite a different route. Uh, but that's, that's where I was. Um, changed my major about seven times. They say the average is about four. No, I, w- I was planning on breaking that record. <laughs> <laughs> I just think it is really inspiring that you went from almost no education to becoming a teacher. It actually, you've probably heard of or read the book Educated, and it reminds me of that, where she grew up in um, in a very, very strict religious, it was actually a Mormon group. They were kind of like the survivalist sect, not the fundamentalist, but the survivalist. And she had to steal books and figure out how to go to school. And yeah, yeah it reminds me of that. And it's just really inspiring. And congrats on sticking it out and oh, figuring it out and really just keeping keeping yourself going forward no matter what was going on. And I think I, I really want to find out, and I'm sure our viewers are curious too, what happened with your family and if you ever did reconnect with them and what that, and you don't have to speak anything specific if, if you don't want to speak on their behalf, but just, I, I'm curious if you have any sort of relationship. Yeah, that too has been a lifelong journey as each of my siblings have taken their own path in self-discovery and rediscovery, then it's all been these each individual, all 17 individual stories and journeys. And throughout the years, we've sort of come back and collided into one another at different times, either in clusters or one-on-one. But um, I've had to give them grace at times when I've reached out and they haven't responded. I have to give them grace and understand that they too are on, on their own path and it may not currently align with where I'm at on mine. But what ultimately ended up happening was shortly after I had denounced and left, then my father and mother had um, also made the decision to announce that they were no longer part of the faith. They remained in the community, so they lived... Um, my, mo- my mother since passed, but my father still lives there. Um, he's lives there with my, uh, with the youngest child and big, huge, massive, empty house. That's just full of echoes at this point. <laughs> and I do go and visit my father. We've since rekindled. We went years without speaking and we're now in the midst of cultivating a relationship that's beautiful I get to have my dad back and have those experiences that a child probably should have had when they were, you know, just infants. So that's been awesome. And I've just kind of seen it as better late than never and understand that 
So much of what I harbored as anger and resentment toward my parents was realizing that they too were doing the very best that they could with the restrictions and resources and their own programming that they had had. So my father, I think, is has gone through years and years of, of reprogramming as well. So my parents left all the children um, that were my age and below had all followed after as well. And I have one, one sibling that did return. She had chosen to marry into a different sect. So she's still FLDS, but a different um, group. And she chose to stay in the religion. And then all the rest have sort of gone on their own paths, exploring education and travel and freedom. I have three siblings that were all married on the same day. Mm. They had received the traditional phone call to my father um, stating that someone was going to come by and pick them up and take them to the church house and they would be married within a couple of hours. Uh, they weren't quite sure to whom. And so everybody's scrambling around. My sister's looking for a wedding dress, getting ready. Um, as she's getting her hair done, then she's told by my father who her husband's going to be. It was a tradition that the man, once he knows who the, his wife is going to be, he'll go to her father and receive her and they might go for a very short drive. They do, do a traditional drive in the community, have a talk about what their future is going to be like, and then they go to the altar and get married. So three of my siblings got married at the same time on the same day. Two of my brothers and one of my sisters. So my my two brothers, I haven't seen them except for maybe once or twice in passing. Uh, they chose to continue Warren Jeff's faith. So I've I've had to sort of mourn, mourn them as though you would mourn a death and say goodbye. And with my sister, she I had reached out to her so many times looking for her and she was placed into hiding. So she was put into a different compound outside of the community and had disappeared. And I remember writing her, I was very, very close to her growing up. And I remember writing her letters and just dropping them in the mailbox without uh, an address, kind of like children do with Santa Claus, you know? <laughs> and I never thought I would see her again, but she, my father called me one day. This was two years ago. He called me and he said, oh, your sister stopped by. And she had left. She was able to leave and um, with her children, which is also uh, not too common for a lot of women that attempt to escape. A lot of times they have to retrieve their children later after they establish a life. So she was able to leave, left with her children, and has since been on her journey of rediscovery into the real world as well. So we've rekindled. So those three siblings were had remained in the community for a long period of time. And the rest have left. We have this beautiful journey now where we all get to have this freedom, freedom of expression, freedom of being doing whatever we want to, freedom to make plans and choices to our own degree. And it's been absolutely liberating, so liberating to, re to for each of us to regain our voice. Wow. 
That's so beautiful. I'm so happy. I mean, I guess it's it's a double-edged sword because you you want to say, oh my gosh, I'm so yes. happy that they left, but then you also know what that yes. means and like the pain and the hardship that comes with that is so difficult. So it's, yes, like I'm, I'm so happy and proud of them and I hope they're, you know, doing well and acclimating as you have and I'm sure that you've yeah. been able to band together and help each other and... I, I imagine it would be uh, really nice to kind of get together and compare notes and say, this is what I learned. <laughs> yeah. And this is what how it works for me. And I recommend this. Don't do that. Yeah. Don't do that. <laughs> it's so funny you say that because that is one thing that we do the very most is we're consistently comparing <laughs> notes and being like yeah. each other's therapists. Like, oh, my gosh, you experienced that, too. What have you done? And we sort of like share these notes like, Aww. well, one way to survive is <laughs> just figuring Aww. it out. Yeah, that's great. I think my last question for you, because I'm so surprised that your dad was able to stay in the community even after he has left. Did that have to do with Warren Jeff's uh, becoming imprisoned and did the rules kind of relax a little bit and like what what has changed since he right. was taken away most men who denounce their faith they lose everything because their homes are in a trust that's called the united effort plan my father refused to leave and through the education of outside sources come to realize that he could fight to keep his home and remained in the in the home to to do so. And coincidentally, at that time, there was so much rivalry and upheaval that was occurring within the community with Warren Jeffs that that trust had gone to the state and had since changed tremendously. That was that trust has been amended. So individuals um, have been able to to receive and keep their own homes to receive the deed on their homes. So there's there there's a tremendous amount of effort and work that has been happening for years with that in terms of people keeping their homes or returning to them. But that was one way that he was able to keep as one just refusing to educating himself on realizing what his rights were and also just the distraction where Warren was going to, to prison. And, and there were a lot of what we jokingly called the God Squad, all of his his um Warren Jeff's minions, those that would be like the that would deliver the messages into the community. Um, they were no longer able to hold that level of power that they had originally had to remove people. Yeah, I imagine it would change the fabric of the community yeah. quite a bit when the leader has been detained and oh, yes. I'm sure it caused a lot of people to question. I imagine because it feels very much like a Joseph Smith situation where you probably have some people going, if he was really the prophet of God, how did God exactly. let him get put in jail? But then you have the complete opposite side, which is clearly he's the true prophet of God because there's so much affliction. And he and becomes a martyr. Yeah. Yes. So... It sounds like just based on your own family with 17 siblings and almost all of them have left, did you see a mass exodus from the community or did you hear of a mass exodus once Warren was put away? Uh, that moment, and, and I say moment because the moment actually lasted for five years and continues, but that moment of returning to the community after that happened 
was, it was just absorbed into the earth when you went there. You could feel it saturated, just that change and that transformation. But there was a massive fracture that had happened once Warren Jeffs was detained and he was actually, it had started when he was on America's Most Wanted. Mm. That's really when the fracture started happening. And people finally had said, wait a second. We're literally listening to tapes on things that he had done, like evidence started to be exposed. Uh, people started to come forward. They started to release this this trance that they were in of fear because he was no longer there. They could yeah. tell other individuals that were making these decisions while he was away. They started to deny that and say and question and say, who gives you the right? And if he's so holy, why is he in this situation? Right. So you have a lot of people that started to question that and started to say no. And there started to be this upheaval and this, this rivalry. And then like, with any, there's this interesting social dynamic that just happens with, with humans. And you start having this, this fight for the, the lead, this fight for, to, to carry on the throne, basically, yeah. and to put it into context. And so you'd see these fractures where people would say, no, we want absolute freedom. We don't want to live this life anymore. And they would be separated from it. And then you'd have individuals that started to build their own sects and their own religions and, and mm. establish themselves as leadership and build their own churches. So now you see this, these independent sects all over the place there where they're now practicing their own their own beliefs it's carrying on the traditional doctrine that Warren Jeffs yeah. did but maybe with some non-traditional flares tweaks <laughs> yeah exactly tweaks how fitting <laughs> yeah I find it so fascinating and I the first I was really exposed to it was reading Under the Banner of Heaven by John yeah. Krakauer which I I know that you had a big part in that do you want to share how you were able to help with that book oh yes so my name is not in that book specifically. My my father is, and there's an interview with my father and my brother in that book. Under the Banner of Heaven, at that time when John Krakauer was researching it, had become quite close to my family and to my father. And in his research, I had given the book called In Light and Truth, I'd given that to my father to deliver to John Krakauer to continue his, his education for that book. And In Light and Truth, is very similar to an instructional Bible that Warren Jeffs was the author of. There was a requirement that all members of the church would listen to that book, In Light and Truth. That was our guidance. And when I was in the compound in Canada, it was a requirement that I put on these headphones and listen to Warren Jeffs recite his own words in that book in a very monotone, very hypnotic, it was intentional, very intentionally hypnotic recording where we just listened to this doctrine of obedience and everything was recited about obedience and how a wife prepares herself in every facet, prepares herself in the bedroom and prepares herself in life 
for her husband and keeps herself innocent and pure for her husband and um and also recites certain rules and restrictions of when she should identify if her husband is not worthy of the church and when she should expose him and wow i remember at that time think like taking the headphones off and going whoa like let me pull myself out of this trance because that it just was not true north like so many times i see people that deny their true north and in that moment that that's just one of the moments but where it was like this is this is not right mm. this is not what what feels right in terms of what's godly or what's holy you know there's such a contradiction to that yeah it just feels like he was trying to groom all of these exactly. young women to be his wife I, how many did he have do you remember 50 56 i believe was the final count why why do you need that that's just anyone who googles it they'll see this pastel smattering <laughs> the first picture that shows up of all of his wives and pastel dresses and 50 something of them I'll add it on the screen right now so everyone can see it. Oh, my gosh. Well, thank you so much for coming on a part two and Absolutely. sharing. Anytime. Yeah, it was great. And uh, any final thoughts before we go? Oh, we need our Linda Listen moment. Oh, yes. A Linda Listen. Do you have one in mind? Yeah, I would say anytime you are faced with this, this challenge where something does not feel right, where your compass is not pointing true north, then you absolutely have the right to, to challenge that and to say no and to question whether or not something feels right. So even though individuals have their, what they truly believe in their hearts as being right and true and correct for you, it may not be the right thing for you. And ultimately, you are the, the captain of your own destiny. So if it's not pointing true north, then recalibrate that compass and go with what what absolutely feels right because at the end your those choices that you're participating in are your salvation and your end and your story so there's so many times that you'll find yourself in situations where people throw velvet on a lawn chair and call it a throne and place <laughs> themselves in this leadership <laughs> dictation and it's just absolutely ridiculous um now coming out of the community and, and seeing that it just seems so obvious and silly at times, but have the, the courage to, to challenge it and say that doesn't, that absolutely doesn't work for me. We live with this disease to please so many of us mm -hmm. and we want to do right by everyone else or we want to, we, we don't want to disappoint anyone and we end up sacrificing ourselves in as a result of that. And if you, um, find yourself challenged with courage, well, you just call me and I'll let them know. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Just standing up and owning it. Linda, listen, if it doesn't feel right, challenge it. I love it. That's yeah, great. Absolutely. And uh, for everyone listening, if you want to support the podcast, it would mean the world. You can become a patron, patreon.com slash close to consciousness. Thea, you are my newest patron. Thank you for supporting. And also, Cheryl, thank you for the super chat, $20 super chat. 
the I think that's what it's called, where you like have a it's like a special comment and I've never gotten one of those before. So I was like, oh, I didn't know that was a thing. So thank you so much for that. And if you like this episode, absolutely go check out the one we did previously. I'm going to link it here with Jude and uh, maybe we can get John on next. We'll see how that goes. And until next time, follow your highest excitement, be conscious and be well. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, it would mean a lot if you could like and subscribe on YouTube and leave a review or a comment to help with our visibility. You can also find me on social media at Colts to Consciousness or reach out by email at Colts to Consciousness at gmail.com.